0: Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. In this episode, we talk about the importance of shared decision-making and personalised care and I'm joined by Dr. Sam Finnekin, who is a GP and a National Clinical Advisor in Personalised Care and he also has a special interest in cardiovascular disease. When listening to this episode, I'd really encourage you to listen to it from both a patient's perspective and a healthcare professional slash clinician's perspective. I took from this conversation that at the heart of personalised care, which to some can sound like jargon, it's just about creating an environment where the patient feels listened to and their thoughts and considerations and their personal circumstances are taken into consideration when it comes to their health and care. And I think to get to a place where personalised care is just at the foundation of what we all do, is that if we both look at it from a patient's perspective and a healthcare professional's perspective, it is a partnership. And Sam talks about the importance of patient's coming prepared and activated in their healthcare to get the most from their interactions when going to their GP or hospital appointments. And from the clinician or the healthcare professional's perspective, there is something about appreciating, yes, it takes time, investing that time upfront and potentially moving from a 10-minute consultation to a 15-minute consultation could save you multiple consultations in the future but he does appreciate the tension there. He is a practising GP. We had a good discussion about the evidence base around continuity of care and just trying to create a healthcare system which meets the needs of everybody, which is probably an impossible task. And in order to have one thing, you need to compromise on another area. It was a fantastic conversation. I absolutely loved it. I've got three asks for you today. It'd be great if you could listen to the end. Number two, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a colleague. And if you love the episode, I would love it if you left us a rating and review. I'll see you in the next episode. Hey, Sam, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
1: Um, I'm great, thanks. A pleasure to speak to you today.
0: Again. Would you be able to share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what what you're passionate about?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm Sam Finnegan. I'm a GP primarily, uh and I spend half my week uh, in clinical practice. Um my my passion really is um is person-centered care and specifically shared decision making and how we get the most out of healthcare by making sure that people and clinicians have better conversations about about the decisions that they make and about the healthcare they want to receive. And that passion has led me down um, kind of an academic GP route. So I've been doing research at the University of Birmingham um, for several years now in and around this topic. Uh, And that's also led me to a role at NHS England as a National Clinical Specialty Advisor in Personalised Care um and yeah, that's really what drives a lot of my my activities outside of general practice. but first and foremost, I am a GP, and that that is the framework on which everything else is built.
0: How do you split your time?
1: um well, I have a full week. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky that my my practice is quite flexible. I try and stick with the same clinical days uh, every week, but i I try not to do half days in practice because they never to be half a day um and then i spend two days a week with nhs england and the academic stuff the research is technically only half a day a week and tends to be um in my evenings as everything just meshes together but i also have three children um and you know they're a priority in my life so fitting working around my my children and my family are it's really important so flexibility is the buzzword really
0: yeah, yeah so when it comes to personalized care and shared decision making what if there is a particular focus what is the particular focus at this moment in time
1: well that's a good question none of this is new that's the thing I'm not I'm not in an, an exciting innovative sexy space I I'm, <laughs> I'm in a really boring um, but important uh, topic in that it's about trying to humanize healthcare. It's about trying to make sure that we're dealing with people and shared decision-making is just a framework in which to, to, um, to look at that Um, because all too often, I think healthcare misses the point when it comes to the fact that we're looking after people and their priorities and their individual circumstances. And, when healthcare gets pressured and we all know the pressures that healthcare is under now we tend to fall back to a default of of just getting the work done rather than really focusing on how we're doing it and so for me the the shared decision making is just a fundamental skill and the how we deliver healthcare and it's not yeah it's not anything new it's it was actually part of when we look back in the history of evidence-based medicine it was part of that model um, but we've forgotten that when we look at evidence-based medicine now we think about taking all the vast body of literature and applying it with care you know our clinical experience but we forget the patient voice in there sometimes so really the focus is just trying to to get people back into um the, their their own healthcare
0: what objections do you receive from your colleagues if it's like nothing new and I'm sure there'll be many not clinicians just people thinking I I do this like Sam stop going I I know how to do my job
1: (laughs) yeah no absolutely and the objections are really well rehearsed (laughs) Um, because (laughs) Well, there's a, there's a good evidence base on the objections and the, the barriers that, that people come across. And I spend a lot of time speaking to, to clinicians um, from all across the healthcare sector, and they tell me the same thing again and again and again. And also, I, I sometimes struggle to deliver this when, when I know that it's an imperative. I can't always do it myself. So the objections are very simple. Firstly, people talk about time. We're in a yep. we're in a time-stretched environment. It's the biggest resource we have, and there is perhaps a misconception that doing this well takes time. And there's no doubt that following uh, a, a protocol or a well-rehearsed uh, pathway for dealing with a clinical problem, because it's automated, because we don't have to think um, differently, is is a very time-efficient way of doing things so you can do things quicker without personalizing care but it's it's a false economy because if we do things quickly we often get them wrong we may end up turning one consultation into two consultations we may end up doing the wrong thing for that person um, and we may end up actually causing harm and for example we might end up with a complaint. We know that clinicians, it's it's the worst thing that can happen to you as a clinician getting a complaint. And all too often, when you look into complaints, and I've had complaints, um, it's about how you communicated, not what you did. Um and that's probably because we're rushed, pretty much always, it's because we're rushed and we're maybe a little bit offhand or we don't listen properly. And these are the fundamental skills of of shared decision making, listening to your patient, making sure we communicate well. And so, although On the surface of things, yes, it's quicker to not be a person-centred clinician, to not deliver um, those really careful, considered consultations. It's, in the long term, probably going to take us longer. And this, I think, pans out. One, you probably talked to to lots of people in primary care about ten minute consultations, and also a lot of practices. And it may come up in in your consultancy work where they've made the shift from ten minute to fifteen minute consultations, and they're really worried about that because of the, you know, quite obvious lower supply that you're giving. Yeah. But most practices that do this say the same thing. They say actually it wasn't that bad at all. And I suppose what they're doing is they're using that fifteen minutes well, and they're really focusing on doing their job in the way that they want to and and are trained to do and delivering better quality care person-centered care and therefore overall they're they're reducing the demand because they don't have to have that follow-up consultation or split a problem up into two consultations so it's, it's the same kind of thing so time is the biggest um objection i get from people
0: I can definitely relate to what you're saying as a patient and I did a talk it was yesterday at the professional diabetes conference and I was there as a parent and my talk was called why I no longer go to my daughter's Taiwan diabetes appointments and I showed a picture of I don't know what biblical reference it's from but it was like Jesus walking into the lion's den and that's what it's like You know, like when the levels aren't good, but it all boils down. At the end of my talk was like, can you just smile? And can you just be kind? Like, I don't, that's all I need. And I feel bad asking for that because on my other slide was like, I know it's busy, but it's really sad that we're in a state where I'm sure everybody gets into healthcare because you want to help people. And then you end up in a situation where it's so busy you are helping people but not in the way that you would want to and your behaviour because you feel so pressured because of time has the adverse effect on what you're trying to achieve and then everybody just feels like crap because I'm sure the doctor or the nurse isn't going home thinking yeah I was really snappy today and I got through my clinic (laughs) like no one wins.
1: Exactly and I think that speaks to one of the other barriers in that um, when when people are asked about when clinicians are asked about shared decision making and personalised care they say well my patients don't want it. And yeah, you're looking at me like, <laughs> well, really? Um, because people aren't asking what their their, their patients want. They're assuming by um, people's manner, people's approach, people's lack of questioning or lack of contributing. But the evidence shows that it's not that people don't want it. People don't feel they're allowed to participate. People don't feel invited to participate in their care as much as they want to be. And so there's this perception amongst clinicians that, patients want to be told what to do that isn't always the case and um, some patients want to be told what to do and that's fine patients should always have the option to not kind of have to be drawn into every minute detail but patients ultimately can only be the decision decision maker the law is very clear that i can't make a decision for a patient the patient has to make the decision but they can decide to go with my recommendation that's absolutely fine and so people will say to me, "Well." I'll spend a long time talking to a patient about the pros and cons and the options. And then they just turn around and say, well, what would you do doc? Um, And I call this the, what would you do doc problem? Um, (laughs) And I turn around to those conditions and say, well, that's absolutely fine. They're asking for your opinion, but the important thing there is yet that isn't the end of the conversation. That's an invitation to say, well, what I recommend to you depends on what's important to you and what you think about the, what we've discussed. So tell me a bit more about that and then I'll make a recommendation.
0: But then your 15 minutes is up.
1: Yes. Yeah. But the alternative is we give them something that they don't want and then they come back or they go and see someone else until they get something they do want. And so, yes, consultations take more than 15 minutes
0: sometimes. I'm smiling because I just think I see it from so many different points of views but I can definitely and I know some PCNs are piloting this and this really works really well and it may be, correct me if I'm part of the shared decision framework where if a patient books an appointment they will receive, you know, like a text message a link to help them prepare for their appointment so what would you like to get from this appointment and ask them some questions and some people fill that in and that's great you know, like they've really thought about it I've been in to see the doctor and the doctor kind of sits down and says you know, like, I can't remember with question it's not how are you or what do you want it's kind of like what do you want from this what do you want from me and i'm just thinking just give me some drugs <laughs> just give me some drugs so i can get on my way but that's not what i want there's not that's not really what i want but it is <laughs>
1: yeah. there's a there's a lot in what you, you the, the question there tara so the first thing um prepared patients so yep. shared decision making uh, works best when patients are prepared, yeah. and there is um, an element of work there. And we know that being a patient is work; it's hard work. And the more <laughs> the more conditions or problems you have, and the more complexity you have, the more work you have to do. And I don't feel comfortable in telling patients that there is work involved in in getting the most out of healthcare. But at the end of the day, this is about trying to get the best healthcare for that person. And it's very much the more effort that people can put in, often the more they get out. I tell people when they go and see the physio that it's not going to happen to them. You know, they're not the physio is not going to make them better, but what they're going to do is help them help themselves. And it's like that with a lot of healthcare. I talk about patients not being passive recipients of healthcare because that people don't get the best out of healthcare then. They only really get the best if they're active participants. And so being prepared for a consultation means you'll get more out of a consultation. And it can make things more efficient. So I think that it's interesting that that systems you're working with are are doing that. Um, And certainly there are things that we can do better, I think, within systems, particularly when people are on a, a predictable pathway. So if someone is on a, you know, a waiting list or, or is going to see someone about an, a knee replacement for osteoarthritis, for example. There's There's a very predictable pathway in systems for that. And so the more downstream we can give them information to help prepare them, the better they are able to navigate that. And w- we're moving away from systems where we just have episodes of care Um, you know going to a hospital seeing a a consultant and then going home again to a more continuum of care because people have access to their health records people have new new ways of interacting whether it be through apps or um, web portals although these are still way behind perhaps where the the potential is and still people are getting appointment letters through the post and it, it can still be episodic but there's so much more potential in giving people more of a continuum of healthcare that allows them to build their knowledge and skills along the way to help them get the most out of healthcare. But going back to the time thing about that 15 minutes, that the other thing I talk to about people, especially people in primary care, is that it's an investment in that relationship. You probably talked before to people about continuity of care, because that's really a, a very topical and interesting topic at the minute, because the evidence overwhelmingly supports uh, continuity as being good for people for for patients good for systems and good for clinicians it, there's no downsides really
0: when it comes to a long-term condition absolutely but it's nice to see the same person yeah but I don't really but there'll be a proportion of patients where actually does it matter does it matter when it may be epis- I don't see the doctor that often and I just need to see somebody for my problem and it's not you don't do you need to know me
1: there is this argument and i'm i'm sympathetic to it but i don't agree with it because i think it's short-sighted because relationships are built up over time and we we a lot of systems now have especially in primary care the, the the simple consultations are moving away from general practitioners and people use phrases like operating to the top of your license and you know i don't need to be seeing kids with tonsillitis um i i should be managing long-term conditions and multimorbidity and complexity and and i do all that but we're missing part of the the role of a general practitioner by excluding those in inverted commas simpler consultations because that's where relationships are built. If you come to see me with your daughter who has tonsillitis, I'm not just treating that episode of care. I'm building knowledge of you and your family, your relationships, other things that will be mentioned in there are all going into the into the the background knowledge so that when something else comes up, I know you. And I know what's important to you. And so it makes the whole personalised care more efficient because I don't have to start from scratch. And this, I believe, this is why continuity does show such good um, improvements in care because it's a a shortcut to personalised care. We don't have to start from scratch every time. I don't have to find out what's important to you. I don't have to find out what your job is, what your relationships are. I don't have to inquire whether you're having concerns with your finances whether you're worried about your elderly mother whether your auntie's just died because i know all this and i can put it all into context and so continuity of care shortcuts some of those important parts of of personalized care for when they really matter because we've already built up that relationship and it's it's a theory um but i i, I think that shared decision making is the mechanism by which continuity of care is kind of manifest in and it's good outcomes
0: the, the question I'm trying to answer is: How do you manage patients waiting for you if they need to see you quicker?
1: And we work in a, a resource-constrained system, so we can't have everything. We yeah. know we know that that we have to make some compromises, and that's what the current thinking is: that people, some people, need continuity of care; some people are happy with episodic, transactional care. And but that's, I think, it's important to hold on to the fact that that's a compromise. Yeah. No, that's not the ideal system. That's a system we've f- being forced to deliver because we don't have the resources to deliver what we want to do, which is proper um, general practice based on relationships, based on longitudinal relationships over time, and um, you know skilled generalists in the community who can who can manage everything.
0: Can I just say to the people listening to this, I am not anti uh, continuity of care. <laughs> But you represent
1: an important voice there, um, Tara. And the important thing is that overwhelmingly the people who make policy decisions, fortunately, are like you. They are young, they are healthy, they are active, they are health literate, but they're not the majority of people who need healthcare. And there's this mismatch. It's really important to remember when we look at health policy, I think. And it's not that people are blind to the needs of the population, but it's very difficult to inhabit someone else's world. And it takes a lot of effort to understand the needs of people who aren't you. And this is was really um, played out very clearly in the whole Babylon health saga. It got a lot of backing from from um, policymakers and politicians because, do you know what? It would really suit them, that model of care. But it turns out it didn't work because not everybody was like them. I think that's the, the main reason it didn't work. And healthcare systems have to... Um, not only account for everybody in their in their population, but really focus on those people who have limited voice when it comes to uh, you know public policy, because it's the silent majority of of healthcare users that are the important ones to focus on.
0: The business of healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with ten thousand donors and their gob for Good campaign. Gob for good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So I've got three, I could talk to you for ages, right? I, I just there's a few things I want to get in. So when thinking about our really wide and diverse population, and you've just talked about I suppose different cohorts of patients and not to be siloed on just you know, like on your own needs. When it comes to tech, so you've got there is a real driver towards the digital front door, and I suppose helping. In helping both the patient and the clinician to be prepared when the two parties meet tech is a good enabler of that but also that can be a barrier yes lots of people have a phone but actually not everybody has a phone not everybody has a smartphone and not everybody is advanced with that and what we what we think of it, what we think is basic may be advanced to somebody else so How are you kind of tackling that when it comes to personalised care and shared decision-making? Because the tech may prevent that first step on the journey of personalised care and they might not be able to get in. No, uh,
1: it's a really good point. And um, I speak to lots of people about different digital uh, tools that are designed to help people be more empowered and know about their health data, find out more information that's available. And, And there's no doubt that Information really helps some people take make the most of their healthcare and improve personalised care, but it's not for everybody. And there's, there's there's two points here really. Firstly, if we can use technology to allocate resources better, then then that's a bonus. So technology can be a cheap way in inverting commas. That, you know, it takes a lot of money to invest in these things, but you can reach a lot of people. in in communicating improving care and the people who then can't or don't want to to access care in that way or access information in that way still have the opportunity to use different approaches whether it be in person whether it be telephone or whatever and hopefully the resource resources that are freed up by using technology for for the other population can then be spent making sure people who, who need different approaches get them I didn't explain that very well but it's you know about resource allocation. It can't be that technology is the only way yeah. to to tackle a problem. It's part of a solution. We have to use resources in the other areas, and you know more wisely. And, and the key one example here is the eight am rush uh, at general practice, which is a major problem. And a lot of solutions require people to then go on the internet and use symptom sorters or online triage or whatever, which is great for a lot of people. They're not hanging around on the phone. They get an answer straight away and it works. And in doing that, the 300 people waiting to to speak to our call handlers in the morning can disappear or maybe go down to 50. 50 people who don't want to or can't use the internet still have the option to call and there are still people there to answer them. What you can't do is switch off the phone lines. You have to have that that other system. The other thing when it comes to personalized care and shared decision making is that there's a there's a there's a hierarchy of of approaches that again drawing on the literature and it says that skills trump tools and attitudes trump skills okay so the tools are the the least important part of ensuring we get personalized care and digital enablers are a tool skills are then really important but primarily it's attitudes but we you know i work on projects that work on tools because they're part of the solution but one of the 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 ways i look at it is that if we're increasing the amount of tools around whether they be digital or whether they be more analog as it were they're also trying to get people to change their attitudes um, by making them making these issues more front and center more pressing getting people to focus on this and so people think well maybe i have to change the way that i talk the way that i consult um, people might start demanding a more person-centred way of of consulting, which I think would be great. That I talk about the pull for person-centred care from the patient population, and hopefully people will recognise the need to upskill in this area in order in order to to utilise these things. It's a bit kind of a rising tide raises all boats. So for people who can't use those digital tools, it doesn't matter because it's requiring the whole infrastructure around the healthcare system to focus on this as a problem and you don't need to use the tool to get, take advantage.
0: And then the other thing we do, I wanted us to talk about was uh, you, you touched on finances. So I suppose both from a patient's perspective, I suppose we're all patients, but you know like we say patients and our own workforce and we've got like the cost of living, is there a project or is there is a focus around finances for you at the moment? yeah well the thing
1: about about personalized care is it's looking at people in their context and and you know their what's important to them and their their preferences and their values and people are, you know we're all very well well aware at the minute of the problems of of the, the cost of living and finances are increasingly or more particularly tight finances are increasingly important to people and the link between poverty and health is really stark um and it works both ways people in poor health tend to be um less financially stable and people who are less financially stable tend to suffer poor health and i'm not an expert in the underlying causes for that but it doesn't take an expert to to know that it's more difficult to eat healthily it's more difficult to um to to enjoy an active lifestyle it's more difficult to be able to relax when you're in poor living conditions cold damp you know worrying about how you're going to be able to to feed your kids these things all impact on health and so we need to make sure that we're remembering that financial pressures impact on people and to talk about them but sometimes as clinicians it's not something we're comfortable in doing feel skilled or able to do um but it's part of getting to know that person in front of the in front of you as a person and in, and in getting to know them we can we can help them better
0: are there any resources that you guys provide in the institute of personalized yes. Care? Yeah,
1: so the personalized care institute which, oh,
0: sorry where, <laughs> where no, right.
1: the pci so I'm, I'm i'm involved with the pci um which is an organization that provides uh, a central point for training in um in personalized care and we've recently produced um some resources called money matters which we're not trying to make clinicians experts in financial advice because it's not our role, um, but it's about giving people some tools where they can they can recognise what resources are available to people and just simply signpost and, and point them in the right direction. I rather naively used to just say to everyone, um, well, contact Citizens Advice. And then I had a patient turn around recently and say, it's going to take me six months to talk to someone from Citizens Advice. Is there anything else? And I didn't have an answer to that question. But the PCI have produced this resource um, and, you know, it's worth taking a look. There's some places where people can go to get information, which might just be the thing that, you know, relieves their stress, relieves their pressure and helps them focus on their health as well.
0: We'll leave that link in the show notes. How, to date, how have you been sharing that resource with clinicians and healthcare professionals so they know that it's there?
1: Well, the the Personalised Care Institute has been around for three years now um and it's it's certainly got you know quite a few learners to come to it uh, partly because it's been promoted through nhs england channels and and through different uh, different means but it does require people to recognize that there is a need uh, a learning need clinicians throughout the nhs or well, anyone who works in the nhs really have to be able to identify what learning needs they have and then and then fill them and there are so many demands on people's time every single every, every single disease uh lobby group in the country every now and then will come up with a statement saying gps need to learn more about condition x or yes. you'll see these press releases gps spend oh, medical students spend four hours of their training on this condition and um, they need to spend much more time on it but every single one every yeah. single group says you need more training in our condition and i come on to these things and say you need more training in personalized care and getting onto people's kind of learning needs radar is very difficult and so part of what i try to do is get people to to understand why this is important and to want to improve in this area uh, and for me it's about professionalism but it's also about job satisfaction and it's much you, you mentioned this earlier, it's much more professionally satisfying to work in a person-centered way. It's much more interesting to get to know your patients and to understand them in their context. And it's actually, it's much more difficult because anybody can follow protocols, anyone can follow guidelines. But applying guidelines with care and compassion and individualizing them is much more difficult, takes much more skill. But, you know, we're highly trained professionals and that's what we should be doing ones worried about being replaced by ai well i don't think ai will be doing personalized care but ai can follow protocols yeah. so if we want to if we want to carve out our future then we need to lean into our professionalism and that really is about about being person centered clinicians
0: have you come across personalized care teams
1: hmm, no tell me more
0: i think in my wolf of life there are i've come across personalized care teams and i think if personalized care is a philosophy of care why would you only have a few people in that team with you know like being the personalized care team versus it being one of the principles that underpins everybody's interaction whether you are the receptionist up up to the doctor everybody should be trying to think what matters most and remembering that's a human at the end of that interaction that feels you know, like in pain to a certain degree. And I just wanted to see whether you'd come across that. That was all. Well,
1: yeah, I, I see where you come from. So there's no doubt personalized care is everybody's business. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder whether personalized care teams are just people that just are reminding people that, like infection control teams, although I wouldn't like to make myself analogous with infection control more, maybe like more um health inequality teams. You know, health inequality, tackling health inequalities is everybody's business. But sometimes we need people to remind people or to make sure yeah. to be the, the guiding light in an organization, because a lot of um, there's actually quite a lot of similarities between the the methods of improving personalized care as there are with tackling health inequalities. And there's a lot of overlaps between the, the aims as well. Um, and people who work in health inequalities or personalized care teams look at, for example, policies and directions and and, and things that organisations are doing through a, through a lens and say, well, hold on a second, you might be planning that, but have you considered how this might impact on this population? Or have you considered how people can um, interact with this? Is it a personalised approach? And so sometimes we all get siloed in our particular interest, and I'm guilty of that as well. Um, and so having experts in a field that work within organisations allow that that context to be remembered.
0: Yeah, I think this comes I see this in primary care networks. How do you make personalized care everyone's business?
1: If I knew the answer to that, Tara, I would uh I would retire. I, I oh no, no I, okay, I, sorry I, let me rephrase I, I, that I, I, how do
0: you make it okay let me rephrase that sorry how do you um, how do you make personalized care everybody's business in your practice in your general oh. practice?
1: Well, that's it's a very difficult problem, and I haven't I haven't nailed it. And I think that I'm slightly guilty of of not focusing enough on my own sphere of influence uh, in my practice, and thinking more about the the policy and, and and leadership side of things. Firstly, it's about pushing back on things that are antithetical to to primary care, which can be uh, to personalized care, which can be often when people are writing protocols or making shortcuts or reminding people to fulfill their quaff obligations or do medication reviews really quickly and you know at the end of a consultation you know things that people are just trying to survive people are trying to um to get the work done and sometimes just reminding people that we're dealing with patients and individuals not the bigger picture. And that's really difficult when um things like Quaff and uh, incentives are all tied up with the finances and finances are very tight. But being that that voice and I'm probably really boring to my colleagues sometimes because I always say the same things. Um, and I push back against the same things because yeah, as I said at the beginning, it's not it's not sexy, it's not new, but it sometimes is just is moving that that compass back towards what people fundamentally know is the right way to practice medicine. Um, but there are other influences pushing the needle in the opposite direction um, that sometimes become a bit overwhelming.
0: So just to finish up, for those people listening, if you take your professional hats off and put your patient hat on, when we're thinking about us as patients, what one thing can us as patients do to get the most from our interaction with, let's just say our G, oh not it's not even GP, get the most from our interaction with a healthcare professional when we're having an appointment.
1: I think being prepared is important. I'm not going to give you one thing. I'm going to give you a listings, but being (laughs) being being prepared. So knowing what you want to to get out of that consultation. Um, And but also telling people, telling your clinician, not being afraid to tell the clinician how you feel about what information you're being presented with, and and if there's things that you don't understand or don't know, and don't worry about asking questions. I there's a very simple um, acronym we uh, we 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 teach when we're talking about options about shared decision making, and that's BRAN. And you may have come across it before. It's making sure that people talk about the benefits, the risks, the alternatives, and what happened if I do nothing. So whenever someone Present you with an option. If you remember benefits, risks, alternatives, and what happens if you do nothing, you, the patient shouldn't have to ask these questions. It's actually a legal and professional obligation that the the clinician tells you all this information. But sometimes you don't get given the options. Sometimes you don't get told. Well, what happens if I do nothing here? Um, and what are the benefits and the risks? And a really key. It, it seems really simple. But if you have one of your transactions where you want the drugs, right? You go in with your sore throat and you want some some antibiotics. Has anyone ever told you what the benefits of that antibiotic is? I can pretty much guarantee no is the answer to that question because people think that the antibiotics will make them better. Well, that's not really what the benefit is. The benefit is that it'll reduce your duration of symptoms by a certain amount because the vast majority of times you're going to get better anyway and then well then the question is well what is that amount well for tonsillitis it's not very much it's about 12 hours um and then well what's the risks people will often talk to you about the risks they might say there are side effects of these medicines tummy upsets things like that um but then the other big one is what happens if i do nothing here and these questions they may seem really simple but they do open up that conversation in a different way and allows that person then to have the right information to make the decision that's right for them.
0: I like that. And then, from your professionals, your peers, and colleagues, what one thing would you want them to take away from this conversation?
1: Well, I haven't really talked about it too much, but it's it's a bit of a problem with guidelines. Okay, so guidelines we can't we can't practice medicine with, without guidelines because there's no way we can distill all the evidence that's produced down into to uh, usable information in practice. But guidelines have become slightly overwhelming in terms of of the practice of medicine, and have become much more rules rather than guidelines. And so, I think that understanding a bit more about the evidence behind guidance, a bit more about effect sizes. So, if someone says to you, if a patient says to you, which they will now, they're all equipped with brand. Well, you're recommending this medicine. What's the benefit of this medicine that you can come back to them and say, well, it's this. But a lot of people are just saying, take this medicine because the guidelines say take this medicine, um, rather than thinking about it more broadly. So we have to know the guidelines, but we don't have to follow guidelines. What we have to do is we have to apply guidance with care to the person in front of me in their individual circumstances and be prepared as professionals, highly qualified professionals, to stray from guidance with the patients you know, coming along with us if they want to do a slightly more risky option than than you would recommend but they're happy with that and they want to take the risk because it's better the option is better for them then that's okay you know that's perfectly defensible it's okay to not follow guidance if you've shared the information shared the decision and the patient is happy to take that take that decision
0: sam thank you so much i really really appreciate your time
1: It's been lovely to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review.